This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Record low voter turnout in Monday's municipal elections and why that's a problem. And it is essential for our health and our food, but we often take salt for granted. I talked to the author of The Miracle of Salt. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. you leave your wealth to? For many, the answer is simple. Give the money to their kids and grandkids. But a new study finds not everyone is keen on that idea. Over two-thirds or 70% of high net worth investors are concerned about their heirs using their inheritance wisely. Research by Global Investment Bank UBS finds a generational divide, including clashing opinions on how money should be used. The U.S. will see the greatest wealth transfer in human history over the next 20 years, $73 trillion to younger generations. Another $11 trillion will be given to charities. the most income tax in Canada. According to a new report from the Fraser Institute, the 20% of Canadian families with incomes over $227,500 pay 61.4% of income taxes. The middle 60% of income earners making between $56,000 and $227,000 pay 37.8%, while the bottom 20% Earning less than $56,500 pay just 0.8% of income taxes. Indian vaccine maker Serum Institute of India says it had to dump 100 million doses of their COVID-19 vaccine after they expired. The firm, which manufactured the Covishield version of the AstraZeneca vaccine used here in Canada early in the vaccination campaign, stopped producing it last December due to low demand. Covishield accounts for over 90% of the doses given in India. The company is the world's largest vaccine maker. I literally was scraping the bottom of my pants, finished off the food, gave him, and as he was walking away, these two police officers drove up. Seven months ago, 78-year-old grandmother Norma Thornton was arrested and criminally charged in Arizona for feeding those in need in a city park. This week, she filed a lawsuit against Bullhead City, accusing police officers of violating her civil rights and arguing the ordinate discriminates against poor people. When first arrested, Thornton suspected someone was pulling a prank, but reality set in when the officer put her in the back seat of his cruiser. That's music from an online video campaign launched by Quebec's nurses just in time for Halloween. 
The professional body, Ordre des Infirmières de Québec, is asking people not to wear sexy nurse costumes on Monday. It says the sexual objectification of nurses devalues their profession and expertise. The order wants people to choose more realistic nursing uniforms. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. There's always a lower turnout for municipal elections than for the higher levels of government. But Monday's races set a record low. In Toronto, voter turnout was 28.5%. In Mississauga and Brampton, it was less than 25%. Across the province, 34%. John Beebe of the Democratic Engagement Exchange told me that's bad news for all of us. This is not just sort of a regularly low turnout that we often see in municipal elections when there's not a competitive race. We're seeing unusually low turnout across the board. Um, And that's not a good sign. It's not a good sign for democracy, and it's not a good sign for the health of our community. And what do you attribute it to? I don't think it can be one thing. There's just two, the, the turnout figures are too low. Even in highly competitive elections, I think we have to look at the impact of the pandemic and people's sense of connection to each other and to their communities. I think we have to look at lack of competitive elections. And I think we have to look at the toxic political environment that we increasingly seem to be operating in. Let's talk a bit about the lack of connection, because I think that's something we don't usually talk about in terms of turnout. Yeah, I mean, it isn't something we usually turn out because we focus on things like how easy it is to vote. And for most people, voting is easy. But we do know that one of the greatest correlations to voter participation and political participation more broadly is how well we're connected to our communities. So I think we have to unpack this and look at the deeper causes. When we see voter turnout in the 20% range, you know, in some municipalities, that's a big red flag that we have to take a deep look at. And... Is it that people just don't feel that their say counts in any way? Yeah, I, I think there's clearly they don't feel like their say as it, participating in an election is going to make a difference. I think people care about issues. They care about their community. We see that all the time. But do they feel connected and do they feel like our system is able to reflect the kind of concerns and issues that they care about? That's an open question now, and I may have real concerns. The thing that people usually do say is that if the election is not, if the race is not competitive, people just figure, eh, my guy or that guy is going to win anyway, so why should I bother? Yeah, and that is a a common factor. Um, But we saw in, in races like in Brampton, which had a competitive race, you know, voter turnout went down significantly. We saw in, in races in, in, you know, in Hamilton and other communities where, you know, it didn't, certainly didn't go up because it was a competitive race, which is what we normally would expect it. So that's why I think it's more than just lack of a competitive race. Brampton, there was also the Diwali factor. Yeah, I think that that was real. But, you know, you know people had a chance to advance, vote in advance voting. But I do think the, the Diwali factor is something we need to be flagging. Um, and for, commu- you know, for people whose 
that's an important holiday. We were making them choose between a very important holiday to them and their family and voting. And we got to make sure we never do that again. Mm-hmm. Well, other minority communities have complained when the majority culture doesn't take their holidays into account, doesn't even check. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's something I mean, we, we are proud of our multiculturalism and we have to have that reflected at the very least in our democracy. How does a toxic political culture play into this? I mean, surely you could vote for somebody, some of the candidates, some of the winning candidates say, oh, I kept the campaign positive and that's why I won. Yeah. And, and hats off to them. I mean, there were a lot of great candidates who ran, but there are a lot of people who just didn't run because they were concerned about the toxic culture that we're living in. And then there are people who, you know, maybe voters, people who might not pay as much attention as, you know, the rest, you know, rest of us. They're saying, well, you know, politics is just ugly. I don't want to be involved in any way. It's not a comment on a particular act, but it's a comment on the sense that politics is an ugly place where people just say ugly things and don't actually solve problems. And I feel that's new. Um, It's not nearly to the extent that we're seeing in places like the United States, but it is concerning that people may not engage because they're concerned about the toxic culture. So what do we do about this? Yeah, well, I mean, we do. The one thing we don't don't do is wait three years or four years till the next election. Something we got to work on now. And these deeper issues of being able to figure out how do we disagree with each other and not create hatred and division. You know, that's what democracy is supposed to do. Uh, So I think we we all have a role um, and we have our civic institutions that need to engage it and identify it as a problem. But we, uh, you know, we got a lot of work to do. Generally speaking, it's been the older demographic that votes in the highest numbers. Do you see any change in that? Yeah, I mean, and, and that can, has, has been true and continues to be true. Um, in the federal election where we have good data, we saw a big spike in youth participation when the, you know political parties reached out to them and engaged them. But I don't see anything in the municipal elections to indicate that young people participated more or that, you know, that many candidates or, you know, leaders tried to reach out and engage them. It may be that for candidates who have limited resources, they're going to focus on the folks they know are going to vote. You know, that's a natural piece. So I don't put it on the candidates necessarily to do the work, but I think we need to figure out a way to, you know, reach out and invite people to participate. Aside from trying to engage people, what do you suggest? All these things that we've missed over the last you know, two and a half years of the pandemic where we were, you know, doing our bit to keep our community safe, but it meant isolating ourselves from each other. And we're going to have to rebuild those things um, and look at ways to to establish connections that help people build community. Uh, And that's sort of a very, you know, not just about voting, it's about building healthy communities. um, But I think it's a, you know, it's a positive thing that we can do to help reconnect people. Okay, John Beebe, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. That was John Beebe of the Democratic Engagement Exchange. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, the miracle of salt. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. 
is essential for preserving, fermenting, and transforming food. We need it to maintain health, and it's been used since ancient times. The Miracle of Salt charts some of its history and the different ways it's used around the world. I talked with author Naomi Duguid. The first reference I remember to salt is in in the Old Testament, where Lot's mm-hmm. wife turned to a pillar of salt pillar because of salt, they right the place that that's set. Um, people generally feel is you know is south of the Dead Sea. Um, as you head down towards Aqaba and um, the Gulf of Aqaba. And uh, it's a very, you know, saline landscape because you have a lot of, you have the saltiness of the Dead Sea uh, and then um, you have a lot of evaporation. So the water evaporates and so the brine gets more and more intense. And um, there's there's a lot of salt in the desert. Think of sort of the Great Salt Lake. The dry places drop dry places where there's a lot of evaporation and there's maybe a salt source, a salt well. I mean, all salt originally was laid down by the sea, but, you know, continents moved, you know, in in prehistoric time, in geological time. And so now there's sources of salt, for example, under Ontario, there's salt in Sarnia, and the petrochemical industry in Sarnia, we, uh, is, it, there's a big salt deposit there. It's one, it's the largest salt mine in the world. And, um, I'm told. And, you know, we, salt that we see on shelves in the grocery store is called Windsor salt for a reason, because it's from that area. So, um, you know, it's, it's salt is, is both everywhere and not, <laughs> and not. And, um, I think the notion of Lot's wife being turned to a pillar of salt, there's nothing more, deadening, salt desiccates, right? It dries things out. That's why we use it for preservation, because it kills the environment that the bacteria would want to live in so that they don't thrive, so it's safe to eat. But the idea of of a human being turned into salt is like, you know, that's a kind of terrible kind of death, you know? It's the end of all possibility of life when you salt something so thoroughly, you know? What are the main types of salt? The salt we're talking about, sort of edible salt, is is we're normally referring to the sodium chloride, which you know the the I mean, chemistry in high school NaCl, Na for sodium and Cl for chloride. And when in seawater, there's sodium chloride and there's also a bit of calcium and there's a bit of magnesium and so on. But it's mostly sodium chloride, and it's the sodium that makes it taste salty. So if you weigh some salt. The weight of the salt tells you how salty it is. So you take a certain volume and you can weigh it and say, oh, it's this. And you can compare it to another volume. Whichever is heavier is going to be saltier per volume. So what kinds of salt are there? Well, the different weights of salt are because of the different shapes of the crystals. And those crystals, sometimes they're chance, but mostly salt manufacturers are striving to have either really fine crystals, like table salt, which is very fine. Therefore, it's very dense. So a given volume of table salt is going to give you more saltiness than the same volume of flake salt. You know, those flat flakes like fleur de sel or Malden salt that you use. The for expensive ones. Salt. They're expensive, very expensive, exactly. So there's no point using, since it's all just, it's all sodium chloride, there's no point using expensive flake salts to salt your pasta water, Right. Because you're just getting saltiness. It's not you can't tell the difference in the water. There's nothing special about the water because you put you know flake salt in it. So you might as well just use. I use pickling salt generally for my general salting. 
And then I use those more expensive flake salts, you know, and I'll have one and then I'll try another and then I'll try another for the fun of it. Um, I'll use those for finishing sprinkling on a salad or, you know, where, you, where you're going to notice it as you bite in. Salt really is miraculous because yeah. it doesn't always taste salty. It brings out, you need it to bring out the flavor of food and it can cut bitterness if you've put too much lemon in something. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. The The way salt acts on food is really interesting. And, and it brings out, um, it, it brings out flavor partly by, by helping, uh, the, the liquid, the, the water molecules in the food to, to, they come out onto the, into the, the salt draws them out. And that makes aromas rise. So when you bite into something and there's salt too, there's more aroma. And you know, our taste buds are, we have, you know, our, our sort of basic um, taste sensors on our tongue, but we also taste through the, the smell that comes up through the back of our nose. And so it's a real enhancer. And yes, when, when, you, um, when you add salt to something bitter, it really cuts the bitterness. And I, that's just a mystery to me. That's just sort of, oh, it's a fact, but, <laughs> but I, don't, I don't understand why it works. It's also used very differently in different cultures. In European food, I mean, we have the tradition of, of salt cod. Yeah. And it's used uh, a lot more in, say, Japanese cooking. Well, it's interesting. You, you know, there's, there's all the salted ingredients. And why are they salted? Well, because when you have too much of, of something, you know, when you have a big catch of fish, you don't want it to rot. You don't want to waste the food. So you have to preserve it and you can dry it. But salt cod was salted to, to, so that it wouldn't rot. So it could be shipped across from Newfoundland originally, um, to Europe. And then it was useful in Europe because, um, people who were away from the, from the seashore didn't have access to fish particularly, but the salt cod would travel. And similarly, in China or in Europe, uh, when when it's time to slaughter the pig or or slaughter the cow, you that meat is going to before the days of refrigeration. How do you preserve that meat? You need to dry it and stop stop bacterial action. And the way you do that is by salting it and hanging it to air dry, so the liquid gets drawn out of the meat and it's preserved. Or you stick it in a in a big barrel of brine, salty water, and again. That stops the bacteria so that in three months you can pull a piece out, you rinse it off, and you might even have to boil it a little to boil some of the salt out of it. And then you have meat. That's how people, you know, that's how sailors on on ships in the, in the before, you know, uh, before the era of refrigeration, they were eating salt beef all the time. I mean, it sounds fairly unpleasant because often they didn't have enough fresh water to rinse the salt off with it. Speaking of too much salt in the diet, mm. can't be much fun. But also, if you think about cabbages, kimchi in, in Korea in, and in northern China and Korea in the fall, you see piles of cabbages, Napa cabbage and round cabbages, and they're all going to be turned into some form of salt brined cabbage or kimchi, you know, things like that. Because then in the wintertime, the cabbage doesn't grow, but you still have the vegetable, you know. And uh, so it's really interesting to see what. You know, kimchi is sort of the equivalent of the sauerkraut of Europe, right? And there's different versions of sauerkraut. Um, and, you know, all the different salted meats and sausages of various kinds. That's all, 
that's all salt-preserved food that saves us in the season when, you know, when food's hard to come by because it's winter or or because there's a drought or, you know, different different periods of scarcity in different climates, right? But um, but we all have these cycles. I mean, we all live in places where traditionally there was a cycle of plentifulness, over-plentifulness, summer harvest, fall harvest, and then, woo, winter austerity. And so the pro- salt solved that problem of how to, how to preserve food for the lean times. What do you hope that people will take away from this and maybe take up? I hope they sort of get reminded that the salt we take for granted was was for so many, you know, eons, millennia, earned with, it was, it was a very precious thing. It was currency in some places, and people people worked really hard. We we have that expression, you know, going back to the salt mine when you, when you go back to work after lunch or whatever. You know, it was it was grueling work. And now it doesn't cost a lot. It, it's it's mechanized. The production of the, the general salt we use is mechanized. And so it's sort of an appreciation of human effort over the centuries. But more, I guess, I just want people to feel like they can experiment in the kitchen and know that there's there's more flavor they can add through maybe trying making a dish with salt cod or trying to use a little fish sauce or experimenting with a little miso. I just, I just would like people to, um, to en- engage and, and have some fun with it. Naomi Duguid, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Naomi Duguid, author of The Miracle of Salt. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.